uh, today I, I have the pleasure of talking with David S. Rose. Um, he is considered the number one angel investor in, in New York City. Um, David, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Maybe could you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Sure. I, am, I regard myself primarily as an entrepreneur and secondarily as an angel investor. Um, and my background is what you would expect for an entrepreneur that is, has nothing whatsoever to do with anything I'm doing. Um, I am. <laughs> what is it like study an, history or something? Oh, uh, no, actually, I'm trained as an urban planner. I have a degree in urban planning from Yale, uh, and then I went into politics. Uh, I spent a number of years working for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was at that point New York's senior senator, uh, as his urban affairs expert, and then ended up running his regional office in New York, uh, where my uh, so you must boss know all was, about Robert Moses then. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm reading uh, the book, The Power Broker, right now. It, that's, a, that's a great book. Um, I know uh, Bob Caro, and uh, uh, my father actually knew uh, Moses, um, and my kids have studied <laughs> Moses. So, you know, in our, in our house, Moses is a, is a uh, well-known figure. Um, so just, but, uh, just, uh, I'm really curious. Is he a positive or negative overall on the guy? Well, it's a it, it's a really tough question. He was a very complex character. He did some extraordinary things, um, and his, he had effects that were very far-reaching. They weren't always to the good, but in general, I think history looking back uh, would say this man was a positive influence on the city. He was an important influence, um, and ultimately a positive one. Although the things happened along the way that were, you know, if you had to do it over again, you wouldn't necessarily do. Just for those listening, Robert Moses is a guy that basically built. Manhattan during the, about the 40s through to the 60s or 70s and had he was an un, un, unelected and, and basically came from nowhere and became pretty much the most powerful guy in, in New York City and potentially the entire state um, and he just did it all from behind the scenes it's a, it's a fascinating story absolutely um, sorry to change the topic. David, please keep going on. No, no, no problem. So, so my, my background is in planning. I then went into politics working for Senator <laughs> Moynihan. Ended up running his uh, regional office uh, in New York. Um, and then after a couple of years, I was having so much fun in politics. I, mean, I was conducting congressional investigations, and I was sitting on boards representing the senator with the mayor of the city. And, uh, and here I was, a 21 or 22-year-old kid. Um, and I figured I'd be stuck there for life um, if I didn't get out. And also, I figured, I realized that at heart, I was an entrepreneur. I wanted to be involved in the private sector. Uh, so I regretfully left uh, Moynihan and went back to business school and got an MBA in finance uh, and then joined my family's business, which was real estate development. My father is an entrepreneur uh, and my family goes back a number of generations in, in real estate. Uh, and so I spent the next 10 years working in uh, real estate development on the East Coast of the U.S., uh, New York City, Boston, Washington. Um, and uh, along the way, as a hobby, started playing around with computers. I'd actually started playing with computers in 1979, uh, and so I brought that into my work. Um, I created the world's first computerized real estate sales office in uh, uh, 1980. Two or thereabouts, um, and uh, we had. Uh, we no, they just running on punch cards or something back then, wouldn't it? No, it was actually Apple IIs, believe it or not, um, and it got a full page right up in InfoWorld. Uh, it was a. Uh, it was using state of the art uh, network hard drives and all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, then later on, we, we were the first company to uh, uh, provide computers and networks with every apartment that we sold in, in condominiums. We actually had uh, a, got a, a building account. 
from the source, and every apartment came with an Apple II computer um, or a terminal and a uh, and an account on the source. We had bu- a building LAN effectively. Uh, we did all kinds of really cool early stage stuff. And then I, uh, on the side, I started a, a company with my one of my business school professors. Um, it was called the Computer Classroom. It was one of the very first computer training companies. We did corporate training in this brand new world of spreadsheets and word processors and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, then I then I, I kept going, and I was I was very active online. So I was one of the early sysops of the system operators of the uh, online forums on CompuServe. Um, by the 1984 came around, Apple introduced the Macintosh. I was the original disk librarian, as we called them then, of the uh, of the New York Did Mac users. Did you have a, either group. an Amiga or a Commodore 64? No, I was an Apple guy from early on. I had an Apple II in 1979, uh, and then moved from uh, to an Apple III, <clears throat> which was pretty cool. Moved to a Lisa. I was I got one of the very first Lisas, one of the very first Macs. I was actually one of Microsoft's beta sites for testing Excel before it was released. Um, and so uh, I, later in my career, I switched to the PC world for a while, but then ultimately switched back. So I'm primarily a Mac guy. You pre-engineered uh, bit. I started in only 1985 or 90, I think 85 or 86. So yeah, you were a you, you, you're a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, so what happened was, here I was in real estate, dabbling in computers uh, as a hobby, and then, then after the Mac came around, and I went to the first Mac World Trade Show, um, and all these people that I had known in the online world through CompuServe and uh, the source and other kinds of places were doing all these little startup companies with these exciting little 10-foot booths. Back then, in the early trade shows, you could fit the whole trade show into a teacup. And so I thought this was really cool. So I wanted to uh, you know, uh, uh, get involved, and I went back the next year, um, and it was uh, interesting. And I realized that all the exhibitors were getting invited to the really cool parties for only exhibitors, and that the poor attendees like me didn't get to go to the good parties. So I wanted to go to the good parties, so I needed to be an exhibitor. So the next year, uh, I got a booth at the Macworld Trade Show um, and so I could be an exhibitor. But then, of course, having a booth, I had to have something to put in the booth. So that's how I started <laughs> <laughs> my uh, uh, my next company, um, I had to create a company to backfill to put into the booth. And I saw in a catalog, uh, one of the remainder catalogs, a digital watch that Seiko had um, uh, put out, which had uh, 2K of RAM and a little serial port. So you could uh, download information from your computer into your watch. It had been a total disaster for Seiko way back when. Um, but I figured, hmm, with this whole world of, of Macs, maybe we can do software to tie it to your Mac. So we got the last 10 units that they had in the catalog and got some you know, people together virtually. And we created a product called the Risk Mac. And I took it to the show, and uh, it was a bit of a hit. Somebody in the press room was overheard saying, hmm, you know, best thing here at that show is that watch, but what a cheesy salesman. Because <laughs> I was doing it slices, it dices, my sort of Ron Popeil uh, sales act. Um, and that was a lot of fun. I did that as a hobby. And then uh, the next thing I know, uh, over a number of years, we went from uh, the Risk Mac, uh, which eventually ended up flying on the space shuttle uh, and became the space shuttle watch, um, to looking for a uh, to do a wireless version of that. Um, but then realized that the uh, uh, wireless wrist watch pager stuff wasn't very effective. So we ended up moving into paging software. We became the largest developer of uh, wireless messaging software for all the major paging companies. Um, and then the next thing you know, uh, the, the whole Spectrum auctions in the U.S. came around um, with the PCS networks, like Nextel and Sprint and so on. And we ended up doing all the software for them. <coughs> uh, at the, by this point, I had uh, moved on from real estate into uh, this tech stuff full time. 
So we were the largest developer of wireless messaging software. We, then we began to do back-end services. We did the, uh, the back-end web service for Sprint PCS that connected their phones to the web and the uh, messaging software for Nextel and a lot of other players. We were then brought on into the wireless uh, press uh, system for the Olympics in Atlanta, um, finished the entire system, and then they decided uh, they, they changed sponsors, so they decided not to ship it, but we got to keep that. We then did online information services, um, and as the world was moving very rapidly, that uh, uh, pointed us in the direction of doing something with the Internet, because the Internet clearly was going to take over the world from uh, dial-up software. And so we said, what happens if you combine wireless with uh, the wireless messaging we were doing with the Internet? And we created the, one of the first wireless data networks for uh, the Internet um, called Air Media Live, the Air Media Live uh, information uh, network. And so we would we had a hardware device that we invented um, that plugged into your serial port. We did deals with a wide range of sources for content, uh, from everybody from CompuServe and AOL to uh, PC Quote and uh, CBS Sportsline and so on, and would send out information on a push basis that would come into your computer even though you weren't online. It would come in wirelessly and it would fly across your screen. Um, and that uh, got to be a pretty big thing. That actually got a full column by Walt Mossberg in the Wall Street Journal when it launched. Um, venture capital began to uh, flow into us. We raised quite a bit in, in VC. Um, and by the uh, time mid-90s came around, uh, the company had about 120 people uh, based both on the West Coast and the East Coast. Um, and uh, we were doing uh, versions of this for companies like uh, um, Compaq and Global Village and NEC and Hewlett-Packard um, and uh, the like. Um, and it was we were the wireless push technology leaders. Uh, I don't know if you remember way back in that time um, when you had Pointcast was the push technology on the wireline and we were AirMedia was the wireless stuff. And then the product shipped and with a lot of fanfare, and nobody bought it, which was very depressing. So um, that was the end of phase one. We basically uh, crashed and burned with a spectacular product that everybody loved but nobody bought. Um, and the question was what to do next. So... <laughs> Uh, at that point, we had uh, we, we had this extraordinary back-end infrastructure, and uh, we went to our investors and said, hey, we have another idea to leverage our infrastructure with this whole Internet thing that's happening, um, and let's be a back-end for the wireless Internet, whether you're using SMS or text or uh, XML or voice or whatever it is, we'll be the, the back-end for the wireless Internet. And so uh, we restarted the company and uh, hit the boom at the right time, uh, and the next thing you know, we had more venture capital, and we were expanding into Europe. We acquired a company in the UK. We got we had, by this point we had investors including Richard Branson's folks and Symantec and um, all kinds of other players. Um, we had offices in London, in Paris, in uh, uh, Germany, um, and uh, things were going really interestingly. Um, and the only thing that could possibly have, have hurt us was if everything simultaneously crashed and burned, you know, the Internet and, uh, you know, wireless and everything else. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. So we had this uh, some great technology, a great system. The, the uh, dot-com crash came along, um, and the next thing we know, uh, there I am back on the street again. 
At which point my long-suffering spouse said, enough is enough, no more of this entrepreneurial stuff. So uh, I said, okay, um, went back, got my, helped get my kids into high school, uh, into, into college rather, um, and uh, went back to one of my avocations, my hobbies of letterpress printing, wrote a book on letterpress printing, um, and was uh, stayed out of the, the tech world for, I don't know, six months or so, when along came somebody I had known from the, the glory days, uh, the guy who actually had invented social networking, um, an entrepreneur named Andrew Weinrich, who created the website Six Degrees, which was the first social networking site. Um, he had sold that for over $100 million in stock. Along came the crash. He was back out on the street. <laughs> so he had an idea for a new company to do a distributed Wi-Fi hotspot network. Um, and uh, he showed me the idea. I liked it. Uh, he asked if I'd help advise him, which I did. Um, and so I invested a few dollars uh, into helping get that started. And the next thing you know, uh, we're off to the races again with Joltage. This is Andrew's company, of which I was on the board, and uh, an investor. Um, I was joined in that by Nicholas Negroponte and some other uh, really interesting uh, early-stage investors. Um, but then uh, the, that was the middle of the nuclear winter, as we called it, in the angel world. And so uh, we could not get uh, any VCs to finance anything, although we had strategic investors who were willing to invest along with VCs. Um, so at that point, uh, uh, that company, which was called Joltage, um, eventually uh, quietly uh, closed down. Um, but now I knew that you, I could lose money both as an entrepreneur as an, and as an investor. <laughs> so uh, I said, okay, well, what do I join? And I joined a local, what I realized was an angel group because I realized I was an angel investor. And that was a group of investors um, who had been pulled together by the New York New Media Association, um, which I had helped to found way back in the mid early mid-90s. And so there I found other of these people called angels who would invest in early-stage startups. And uh, I did some uh, investments, some small investments uh, through that group. And then it turned out that the trade association itself <laughs> closed down because they had, in, in the middle of this nuclear winter, 8,000 unemployed um, dot-com types uh, all looking to get jobs from the other 8,000. So that didn't quite work. Uh, but we then took the angel group, since I wasn't allowed to start a company, according to my spouse, uh, and we uh, did a business plan for the angel group as a not-for-profit, and we started New York Angels, which uh, this is now seven or eight years ago, um, has become uh, the most active uh, serious angel group in the New York area and started doing investing on a more or less full-time basis. And so having then over the years invested in over 75 companies or so, um, about five years ago, I was looking around at the whole angel world and realizing how difficult it was to administer a group of you know 75 type A personalities as uh, who were these angel investors and reviewing hundreds and hundreds of uh, funding applications each year. And there were no tools. And I, I searched the whole world, found there were no tools at all, and decided ultimately that uh, there was a market hole here and that if one could provide a tool set to help bring uh, angel investors and early stage entrepreneurs together, um, there was in this age of exponential technological growth a lot of good stuff that could come out of that. And so I created, finally got permission from my spouse to start another company, uh, and I started a company called AngelSoft. Um, and so today uh, the, uh, here I am with a company called AngelSoft, which provides the 
back-end infrastructure for virtually every angel investment group in the world, over 500 of them in 45 countries. There are over 20,000 accredited investors who use the platform to process over uh, 3,000 business plans each month. Um, I'm myself actively investing in a dozen or more companies every year. Uh, and then physically here in New York, I set up an incubator and a co-working space. Uh, and so as a uh, essentially a crazy entrepreneur, I end up these days working 16, 17-hour days, seven days a week, and having the time of my life. So in a nutshell, that's the story. Interesting. Well, I have a key question, I think, to ask that maybe ties all of this together, if I may. Sure. How were the parties? <laughs> the parties turned out to be pretty interesting, although it was a lot of geeks running around, um, and uh, there, there were a, a few early-stage techie types who, uh, you know, um, artistic types who were involved in, in tech, surprising ones. For example, do you know that the Judy Collins, the folk singer, um, was an Apple fanatic from early on? I mean, she would take apart her, her Apple II and, you know, stick in cards and work on the OS stuff, and Todd Rundgren was a, was a programmer. So there, there were some folks in that area who uh, got involved. Um, but for the most part, you had uh, a lot of geeks. But that was my, my crowd. The the online forums on CompuServe, um, uh, in, in the Macintosh forums that I was a system operator for, um, would get together at these events once or twice a year. And I became the sort of, uh, we called it the sushi op, because we had these sushi banquets. And I was like the social butterfly. You, know, you give of, me all of this, uh, this elaborate stuff, but in the end, you just went for the booth bags. Come on. Let's abs- get absolutely. Real so, well, we would, we, would have, we would have these banquets, these sushi banquets at each, at each trade show. And it was an enormous amount of fun. I actually, at, at one point, way back in the dark ages, uh, there was a party, an after party at one of these events, and my hotel room was, was uh, crowded with all kinds of interesting people. The next thing I know, there's this crazy bearded guy who was uh, um, working on my, uh, on my phone, on my hotel room phone, taking it apart and wiring stuff up. And I looked, and it turned out to be a guy named uh, John Draper, better known as Captain Crunch, who was the first. Oh, really? The, you met John Draper? Yes. Uh, yeah, well, did he have his back issue by the time you met him, or no? Uh, he, he was a inter- very interesting character. Uh, so the next thing I know, there's hotel security in my room, and uh, <laughs> uh, it, was, uh, it was a very interesting time. Let's put it that way. Yeah. John Draper was Captain Crunch. Um, he was one of the, the guys that basically invented blue boxing, blue boxing yep. on, using a system for free phone calls. Let's not go down that, because we do need to talk about business here. Um, now, I'm interested to know, like, the, I mean, the stories you told, um, <coughs> I'm, I'm actually surprised because you're a, a sharp New York guy, you're aggressive, you're direct. Um, the, the sort of stories I usually hear from guys like you is, you know, like, I kicked ass in this and I did great in that and, you know, then we did this really well. But, I mean, most of those stories you told through the beginning of this call were pretty horrendous. I mean, you fell <laughs> on your ass, like, over and over. Well, I mean, they're, absolutely. They're, they're not good, right? It sounds well, like, I mean, you, your wife said you couldn't go and start uh, a business, but... That sounds like this stuff really affected your marriage. Um, I mean, it sounds like a lot of stuff went really wrong, and now you've managed to pull it together. Do you want to, maybe can you like talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, the, the answer is I, I now do a lot of, of uh, talking and teaching about entrepreneurship. I was uh, mentor of the year last year at New York uh, NYU um, Stern Business School, and I'm on the entrepreneurship advisory board at, at Columbia and at Yale, my alma maters. Um, and I do a lot of teaching about entrepreneurship. And the first thing that you let every entrepreneur know, every wannabe entrepreneur know, is that this is tough. Being an entrepreneur is one of the toughest careers you can choose because bad stuff will happen. Absolutely guaranteed. 
And since you're the one who's running the whole ship, um, when it happens, it happens to you. And it can be very, very, very bad. I mean, when, when my, my first company uh, went down, you know, the, the first Air Media, with, with you know, lots of venture capital and lots of users and 120 people on staff, uh, you know, that was, had, until that point, the biggest you know, single disappointment of my life, the biggest failure. And it was really depressing. And I cried myself to sleep. I mean, it was really bad. But then you pick yourself up and you, and you start doing it again. And, and, and the most important thing is to maintain your integrity um, and never sell out and do the right thing. Um, and if you are doing the right thing for the right reasons and have your integrity, you know, things go wrong. And entrepreneurs will fail. And every entrepreneur does fail. But if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you've got to accept the fact that it's going to happen. You don't set out to fail, but one failure does not mean you pack it up and go home and, and work on an assembly line. It means you, you keep going, you learn from your mistakes, and you, you try, try again. So entrepreneurship... So, I mean, it sounds like you ground through failures for like 15, 15 years. I mean, does that it was right? It was challenging. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was... T- so the question is, why do you do this? And, and one of the things that I found, that, you know, with, with 25 years, 30 years now as an entrepreneur, um, is that entrepreneurs are crazy. Uh, and the angel investors, the, the average angel investor has over 10 years uh, experience as an entrepreneur, him or herself, and has started you know, two or three different businesses. Um, and so, therefore, angel investors typically are distilled craziness. So, I'm, I, so I, I live these days in a world of crazies on both sides, and I'm certainly part of that. And so uh, the, you have to have a calling, a, you know, a vocation from the, the Latin vocare to be called to the, originally to the priesthood, but uh, you have to know that this is what you want to do. And I get lots of, of uh, business school students who come by my office and looking for career advice. You know, should I be a venture capitalist? Should I be an entrepreneur? Um, and I make the point that if you're asking that question, you've already made uh, a decision because you already know the answer because if you are an entrepreneur you have such a calling such a drive you have to do this and no matter how many times you're punched down you'll get up and you'll try it again because that's what entrepreneurship is about okay. what about with your wife I mean don't, don't tell us about it if you don't want to but it, it sounds like it puts stress on your relationship like how did you manage that and make there are uh, differing people are, are natural entrepreneurs to different extents um, and I, I believe it's a spectrum some people you know you take a Richard Branson on one end I mean this guy is a, you know you, you put him on a uh, you know a desert island he'll be selling coconuts to the seagulls kind of thing um, you know total hypomanic entrepreneur but the other end there are people who absolutely no way never ever how would touch anything entrepreneur don't want to do it. My wonderful spouse is, in, <laughs> is at that end of the spectrum. So it's in, in one sense, it's a good marriage because uh, uh, we are completely different ends of the spectrum, and it's a very, very supportive. Um, so uh, it took a couple of years uh, break between uh, ventures uh, before uh, uh, we got uh, started again uh, in the entrepreneurial world. But she's she's very supportive of, of what I do, uh, and it's and, and these days uh, secondhand enjoys the the uh, retailing. Uh, of the experiences over here. So, uh, what, when, what's I mean, when you had like your business career like falling apart through various stages, how did you manage to not bring that home? Well, at some point, I am a people describe me as being preternaturally happy. Um, I, I am a very, I am an optimist without question, and I think to, at some extent you, you can't be a pessimistic entrepreneur because so much of entrepreneurship involves having faith in yourself and faith in your vision and the ability to uh, to keep going in the face of adversity. Um, and so, I am naturally extraordinarily optimistic, extraordinarily upbeat, um, perhaps uh, inappropriately and crazily so. So I never lose my temper. I never shout and scream. I never 
get mad. Uh, and that, and, and I accept the fact that that's unusual. So I, I have, um, uh, you know, the ability somewhat to, to, uh, to separate. Um, but also I try not to let it affect me. Uh, you know, if you're down on the dumps all the time, you can't be a good entrepreneur. You have to have, have faith. So I think it's partly personality. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I did keep the, the home life somewhat separated from, uh, the business life. But that's challenging. Yeah. No, no, I bet. All right. Um, I hear or, or the thing I hear about about you is this angel group, um, and I'm, I'm interested that you mentioned that they're they're all these type A's. Um, I don't really know much about angels particularly. Maybe can you tell us a little bit about who are the typical types of angels that you have in your group, and what do you guys do, and how it works, and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, so angel, the, the different. Most people think of of all kinds of financing in one big pot. So oh yeah, there are banks, there's VCs, there's angels. They often use the you know one one word without spaces, angels and VCs, or VCs and angels is, is the same kind of thing. But if if you think about uh, the whole financing world, there are, the timelines are very very different. I mean, banking goes back to practically the Phoenicians, you know, uh, you know, thousands of thousand years ago. Uh, stock markets go back to the you know, London Stock Exchange, 1788. Um, venture capital firms. The first venture capital firm was founded after World War II by uh, General George Dorio in the 1950s. Um, and the first angel groups were only founded in the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s. So that the timelines are quite different. And the difference, central difference between venture capitalists and angel investors, is that venture capitalists or VCs are professional money managers who go out and raise a fund of other people's money usually institutional from uh, pension funds or insurance companies or university endowments or super rich people and so on. Uh, and then they pick uh, early-ish stage companies uh, where they can apply uh, that money um, to get high returns. And uh, so they are compensated by getting a piece of the profits that they make on other people's money. In contrast, Angel investors are individual people who invest their own money out of their own pocket into early-stage companies. And because of, the, of that essential difference, uh, there are differences in the size. So a typical venture capital fund might be a fund of $100 million these days or $200 million, um, whereas there are you know, no angels or few angels who have anything like that money. So venture capital funds historically have invested in the few million uh, range to a few tens of millions, whereas Angel investors, out of their own pockets, typically invest you know, tens of thousands to low hundreds of thousands. And that means that angel investors have tended to invest earlier in the cycle when companies are just starting up, whereas VCs tend to invest a little later in the cycle when they've had a little more traction. So you're looking at people who are investing their own money out of their own pocket into companies that they know where they're, they're betting on the entrepreneur. And because most angels have some experience of their own in entrepreneurship or early-stage companies, they also try and add value by helping the company through their networks and through advice and sometimes even management. Uh, and so those are the kinds of people who um, uh, look for early-stage companies in which to invest. And so what happened in the 1990s was you found these individual people investing in individual companies, and they'd bump into each other, and they'd, you'd find two people in the same deal. And they'd say, hey, you know, why don't we pool our deal flow so we can see deals that I might like 
like that you might not like and vice versa, and then pool our money. So we, if we're each putting in $50,000 together, we can put in 100000 um, and then pool our advice and so on. So that was the origin of angel groups, some of the very first ones, uh, like lower, loosely or, uh, organized retired executives down in Pennsylvania and um, uh, Band of Angels out in California um, began to get together. And when you get 50 or 100 or 200 people into a group, all sharing their deal flow and their expertise and their money, you begin to get something that has uh, a lot of reach and can do a lot of interesting things. Because the biggest challenge... End up, I mean, how do you end up doing it? Because one of the things that I guess... I, 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 a friend of mine is Dave McClure, um, I guess, who you heard of out in Silicon Valley. No, I, I, I know Dave well. So he's, he's doing a lot, of, um, a lot of different types of investing. One of the things that he talks about is where he'll, he'll place um, small bets and he'll increase the bet with companies that he can see is gaining traction and then he just kind of lets the other, others, I guess, go to the wayside. Um, <clears throat> as an angel, if you're on the very bleeding edge of the game, so you're always in the initial round, you don't have the scale to be able to do lots of follow-on investments so therefore, it seems like you guys are taking most of the risk and potentially getting diluted out by VCs or other people later on. Like, how, honestly, how good are the returns as an angel investor? Well, it actually—that's <laughs> a—that's a very perceptive question, and the answer is it's very tricky to do it right. And it's not so much a science. Um, it's partly art, partly science, and a lot to do with portfolio diversification because nobody can pick early-stage companies right all the time, even a majority of the time. And the, the statistics are pretty interesting in terms of early-stage stuff, which is the majority of all angel investments fail completely. If you do 10 investments, five of them, you can expect and you should expect, are going to wipe out within the first year or two and crash and burn and literally lose your entire investment. That's 50 percent of your money right down the tubes day one. And so if you then look at the at the rest of it, you know, of the next five, um, you know, two of them maybe a few years later will give you back the money you put in. So you don't make anything there and you've lost the value of that money over time. And then two more, you, you'll have an exit of some kind to be bought by a larger company or whatever, uh, and will return, you know, two or three times the money you put in, which would be pretty good, except it's taken, you know, five, six years to do that. And by the time you, you put those hit wins against offsetting the losses, <laughs> you're effectively back to zero. Um, and that means that your whole portfolio ends up riding on one company, which you hope to be a real home run. But the, but the thing is, if you invested it at an early stage in a relatively appropriate or modest valuation on that one company, and that company then becomes a you know, $50 million or $100 million company, uh, the returns, you know, 20 or 30 times return uh, of your money on that one company out of 10 means that in total, your portfolio over time has an IRR in the 20 to 30% range. And if you take a look at the returns of differing kinds of funds, from private equity funds to venture funds to early stage seed funds to angel investing, it turns out that the earlier stage at which you invest, the law, if you do it correctly with enough diversification and enough holding, over time, the earlier at which you invest, the greater the returns. And so a number of studies have shown that the, uh, the average return from sophisticated investors who have a large portfolio in the earliest stages of angel investing is in the 20 to 30% IRR range, which is actually quite good. So for guys like Fred Wilson, I mean, he sits further up the, up the food chain, How, where, would, where would his IRRs be? 
Well, I mean, the tip, uh, I don't know exactly what, what Fred's is at Union Square Ventures, um, but Fred is actually not all that much farther north. So Fred is a very early stage fund, what, what USV does. I mean, so they won't invest in, in companies with, uh, you know, long-term, you know, growth financing at the, you know, 50 or $100 million valuation. So they would be the next level after us. So his returns are likely better um, than, you know, most of the later stage VCs. Typically, VCs, um, you know, would, would love to, to show, a, you know, a 20% IRR, you know, net to their uh, uh, investors after taking out the the twenty percent of that that the uh, the VC himself takes. Uh, so so typical you know uh, you know VCs would love to show a twenty percent return to their investors. Um, in actuality, however, the, the sad fact is that the majority of venture capital funds in the U.S. that have been founded in the last ten years are actually underwater, have actually lost money. So it's a very it's a very risky business for angels and VCs and entrepreneurs. Um, but that's but we're all in it, going in understanding the risk. And you have obviously a massive competitive advantage now because you have your angel network locally and then you've got this angel supplying software that's being used around the world. So you have a, a much bigger reach into the best deal. Well, not necessarily, because the, the uh, AngelSoft, you know, we, we have no leverage on AngelSoft that, that anybody else uh, doesn't have. AngelSoft is a, is a tool platform um, that is that provides the backend infrastructure for all the world's angel groups. And so what that does to everybody, it lets you uh, source. We, we have an area called Open Deals, um, in which uh, angel groups that are looking to syndicate deals can post a deal and saying, hey, we've got, uh, you know, part of this deal financed. Who would like to join us uh, in, in funding this deal? And entrepreneurs themselves can post into that area. And you know, so therefore, be avail- be accessible by you know all twenty thousand investors. So so to that extent, um, you know anybody can use AngelSoft to uh, to broaden their their reach in, in deal flow. Um, and, yeah, but you're and the, the man, right? So the, 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 some of them are going to just come. People are going to come directly to you and say, hey, you know, you're the guy. We want you. Oh, I mean, in terms of, of, of deal flow, sure. Uh, you know, the more, the more that I have, uh, you know, been involved, and the longer, the longer you, you stick around the angel world, the more you're known as an angel. The more you blog about it and write about it and speak about it and have exits. You know, people like Dave McClure, uh, you know, who, who's an active uh, both VC and angel investor on, you know, on his own, um, get deal flow. And so, uh, you know, those of us who are very active angels um, get people coming directly to us, which we we try and encourage, which is great. Uh, but it's, but, but you know, for the average angel who doesn't have that profile and doesn't do it on such a full-time basis, that's why they belong to these angel groups, which in turn go out and, and actively try to market themselves and get companies to uh, uh, to submit plans to them. So one of the, the major functions of angel groups is to provide deal flow for angels who themselves don't have a, a lot of deal flow. Actually, now, maybe you, um, you've seen um, Jason... Um, Calcanus talking about yeah talking about the pay for presentation and stuff like that. I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on that area. Well, sure. I mean, I, I know I've known Jason for 20 years since uh, he started in, uh, in the whole New York area over here. Um, and and his uh, jihad, as it is, um, is against um, angel quote angels unquote or quote angel groups unquote that charge entrepreneurs to be able to pitch. Um, Jason uh, paints with a rather broad brush, shall we shall we say, um, and doesn't do nuance. And there, and the reality is, there is some nuance here. Um, there are people. It's a spectrum, and it goes from light to dark. And on the dark side are uh, events and groups that charge literally ten or $15,000 for a company to have the, quote, opportunity, unquote, to, to present their pitch to a room full of people. Um, and, you know, I don't think that makes any sense. And I agree with him. That, that really is making money on the backs of entrepreneurs um, who are uh, 
who don't have much of a chance of getting funded. You know, on the other extreme, you have you know angel groups that are not-for-profit entities uh, that uh, charge very small amounts of money. You know, fifty, a hundred, two hundred dollars to companies to uh, to help defray their expenses for the meeting and you know their small staff and so on. Uh, but where the the individual people don't make money on it, it's just an expense thing. And and the, the Angel Capital Association in the U.S. has established a, a total fee limit of five hundred dollars. So if you uh, so so they say that any group that belongs to the uh, Angel Capital Association shouldn't charge more than five hundred in total to entrepreneurs throughout the whole process. Um, and and I think that's not an but unreasonable. Why, it, why would there be any kind of regulation? I mean, it's a free market. It's a free world. If people want to pay ten grand to go and speak to someone, they, they, I don't have a problem with that. No, absolutely, and, and and there is no regulation, and that's that's part of the problem. So, but Jason is a populist, <laughs> and and, and uh, Jason has a you know a, a blog following, and um, he's gotten a lot of uh, readership out of this. Um, and 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 part of it is that, that there there are a uh, a large number of entrepreneurs who are always being generated. Um, I, I liken the, the analogy to fish swimming in a fast-moving river. They are being spawned upstream, and they, they keep uh, swimming down. And every day there are new fish swimming down that river, and every day the fishermen who would be the investors come to the same bank and so it's the same thing every day for the investors but a new thing every day for the entrepreneurs and so an entrepreneur who, who hasn't heard of this might look at a at a fancy web posting or, or ad for some kind of uh, event that says if you pay us fifteen thousand dollars we will put you in front of all the people who will give you lots of money and so they don't know any better um, and so uh, they'll pay the money and in reality they would have almost zero chance of getting funded uh, from from that event uh, and so what Jason is trying to do, um, maybe a little heavy-handedly, but he's, he's, he's trying to warn people against that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in, in general, he's right. And it's an interesting, um, you know, question for the whole field when you get down to the smaller areas. If you are a, a not-for-profit angel group of individuals who are, you know, trying to look at uh, deals and increase your deal flow, you know, is it inappropriate to uh, to ask entrepreneurs to you know who you are getting there going there to listen to pay a hundred dollars to help defray the cost of the meeting and your administrative staff and so on? Uh, so it's a, that's a legit question. Somebody ultimately has to pay something somewhere. So Jason started his own angel group um, called the Open Angel Forum, uh, which he is uh, funding by having uh, uh, service providers pay for it. So lawyers and others, you know, do it. So and and, and one could say, all right, fine. It, it, is it, does it make sense? Is, you know, is it appropriate for uh, you know for investors to um, anoint a particular you know service provider uh, because they're paying money to, to get the you know, group going? You can look at this uh, several ways, but there it's a, right now a very uh, wild and woolly business. And what we're trying to do with AngelSoft, with the our, our, the tool platform, is to provide a somewhat standardized way of reducing costs across the whole board, standardizing things and, open, and making uh, everything transparent. So because AngelSoft is this back-end platform for all these groups, you can go on AngelSoft and look up New York Angels, and you can see exactly how much money we've funded into how many deals and over what kind of time, how many people have checked in in the last month, how many, what our average time to look at a deal is, what our average time to funding is, full transparency. And we think that that's really good because uh, you know entrepreneurs can now see in the real world, not you know, listening to uh, uh, you know, bogus sales pitches, exactly what happens. Um, I want to ask about your um, incubator co-working space. You said you have five floors of stuff going on there. Yeah, well, so you know, being involved with New York Angels, New York Angels, most angel groups tend to invest in a particular uh, region, a particular uh, industry, particular stage of company. 
in the case of New York Angels, I mean, our, we, we have you know really interesting uh, members. We, we have most of the major technology investors in New York belong to our group. People like Esther Dyson and Alan Patrickoff and uh, and so on. Um, and uh, you know, we tend to invest in companies that have started up, have shown some traction. In other words, they've uh, typically been around for you know a year, you know, maybe a little longer than that. The entrepreneur has put in a little bit of money. Uh, they've got a product that's either shipping or ready to ship. Um, they have customers or prospective customers or beta customers. Um, and I, I wanted, you know, and so we invested in these early stage companies. And I wanted uh, to be close to the companies in which I invested. Some of them only had two or three or four people. And so uh, I opened an incubator here where, where they could uh, relatively inexpensively get office space and be near me so I could provide advice and, and so on. Uh, and then the next thing you know, we had other people wanting uh, space, similar space that uh, I wasn't invested in. So we said, sure, as long as you're you know, good guys and in the tech space and, and can add value to the, to the whole thing, you, know, you come in too. And then, uh, I, you know, as the world is getting uh, less and less expensive to start companies, and um, you can now start a, a cloud-based company uh, really cheaply with one person and a, and a cat. You could do it in Starbucks. But I said, okay, um, there's a trend to co-working spaces of open uh, areas where you could, uh, for relatively low amounts of money, pick up a desk and uh, uh, spend time there. You know, 24-hour access with internet and uh, you know, phones and everything else. Um, so we opened. Does that include the cats as well? Yeah, it does include the cats, but but we actually we we have one company has uh, a hamster, um, and we have a couple of dogs, so uh, we're sort of pet friendly. Um, and so we have uh, probably you know 15 or so companies uh, you know on a couple of floors here, ranging from one person to I think seven is the biggest um, that are in varying stages of startup, from people with an idea who are working to get themselves to the point where they are ready to approach angels for funding, all the way up to uh, some venture-backed companies uh, that have relatively small teams and find the space conducive. And um, since all, New York Angels also has its offices here, as does Astia, which is the um, Nonprofit, international nonprofit that helps women uh, own uh, entrepreneurial businesses. Uh, they're here. Um, Angels Office headquartered here. Rose Tech Ventures. Do you have five mine. floors. I mean, how, like, how many people are there working away? Uh, we have uh, in, you know, in total, but probably uh, probably fifty to a hundred. No, let's see. If I could call, call seventy, maybe seventy-five on, on across the whole the whole operation. Um, Do you have seventy-five guys that are sitting churning out ideas for businesses they're trying to start? Well, but they're different kinds. So, you know, 20 of some out of them are in AngelSoft, which is our company here doing this back-end platform. Um, we have uh, a large uh, uh, one floor is taken over by a startup that started small. An angel investor came in for, to, for angel investor space, then had a startup, and the startup got bigger. Then they got venture funded, so they're, they're a full floor. Um, and then we have, uh, as I said, a couple of floors of uh, incubator and co-working space, with, ranging from open areas to small offices um, with one, two, three-person shops. So it's a pretty, ex- and we're, we're we're sitting in right in the middle of the Flatiron District, which is known as the uh, Silicon Alley here in Manhattan, and right across the street from a, a, a snack bar in, the, in Madison Square Park called the Shake Shack, which is a Danny Meyer restaurant. Danny Meyer is one of the world's great restaurateurs, and he has the super duper gourmet hamburger stand, uh, which has become the center of all of the New York technology community. And so the the lines are typically an hour long line to get a hamburger, and we are right on top of that. And so. Uh, you know, we're we're a, uh, a very interesting central nexus point for the technology community here in New York. I didn't know that's really interesting. Um, 
So it's, let's say someone wants to get started in your co-working space. How does that work? Uh, they, they apply, and they say, hey, I'm, here's my business, and I'd like to you know, get a desk or two or three. And we're, we're very open, and provided that they are in the tech startup arena, which we think contributes to the whole uh, feeling of the place, uh, we welcome them to come in, and it's no long-term commitment. It's month to month. Um, and we, you know, we, we, you know, we have a no bozo policy, so we don't look for jerks. We don't look for we're not looking for real estate salespeople or or uh, people who are uh, making a lot of noise in a, in a co-working space. So uh, it's, it's actually pretty quiet here. People working on computers, um, you know, one, two, three person teams, uh, all in the technology arena. We have various events. Where every Friday we have what's called Free Lunch Friday, um, where we uh, bring in a guest speaker, either a uh, somebody in marketing or somebody in technology or venture capitalists or whatever, um, or me, uh, and do a presentation to everybody. We provide, you know, pizza or sushi or whatever. Um, uh, we have other kinds of events. For example, uh, last week, the first round capital um, team, that's one of the leading uh, VCs and early stage VCs, uh, came around on a walkthrough and, and their whole team and spent uh, a couple hours here meeting with our various entrepreneurs to hear about their businesses. Um, so uh, we, we've hosted a number of the uh, New York uh, meetups here and uh, ultralight startups and uh, other areas. So it's a pretty vibrant environment. How much does it cost? Like for like a one desk, one person going to get started. Uh, our starting rate right now is about five hundred dollars per uh, per desk per month, and it goes up to uh, a few thousand dollars if you want a private office for several people and so on. So it's it's really cost effective. Um, uh, you know, you could uh, you know go to Starbucks cheaper, but <laughs> they don't provide quite the uh, the environment here. So the the, the goal here is, is not to uh, run it as a profit center, which we don't, but rather uh, to run it at, at, at break even uh, and provide you know additional deal flow for us and and keeping our hand on uh, finger on what's going on in the community, uh, you know, let people know that, that we're here and we exist and basically, you know, do good. No, because I went and actually checked out uh, a couple of weeks ago um, a couple of sites for co-working in New York, and one of the things that did surprise me was that they were small. Like, how big is the space? Uh, each uh, We have 2,500 square foot floors, so we have a total of five floors. Two, two floors are devoted to one floor for the co-working space, one floor for the incubator, one floor for shared resources, which includes a boardroom and a video studio. Well, I just meant like uh, the, the space you actually end up working in. Like my office here where I live in Santo Domingo is massive. I, 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 I live like a king. And it was like looking at some of these working spaces these guys have in Manhattan. It's like, oh, my God, that's like... I could fit like five of those into my office space. Right. Well, it, it, it depends. The, the co-working floor is a totally open floor. We have there's one conference room and the rest of the floor is open. And so you would uh, you, you sit at a desk, um, you know, with a nice sized desk uh, in a, in a 2,500 square foot open uh, floor. Um, in the uh, demise offices, they're relatively small offices. Uh, you know, two person offices, three person offices. Um, this is this is New York, so you're not going to have one person with you know 10,000 square feet of space. Um, but it's uh, Again, depending on what you're looking for, um, open space, private office, whatever, it may or may not work for you. Right. And does that does that send a lot of deals back to the angel investing side? 
Uh, some, um, you know, uh, perhaps, you know, again, New York Angels uh, gets probably 20 to 30 uh, applications each month for funding. We only have, you know, what, 15 or so uh, companies, uh, you know, in the, in the building here. So uh, we just could, you know, wouldn't provide that much of a percentage of the, of the deal flow to New York Angels or, or to me. Um, but, again, it helps the community and it raises our profile and people come in and visit. And, and so uh, we, we see, we certainly see uh, a lot of companies here. So I'm, I'm very pleased with the way it's worked out. And so as part of what you've done, you've also had uh, one or two angel and res- uh, entrepreneur in residences. Right. We, um, uh, this is an, the EIR, Entrepreneur in Residence, um, is designed to help the entrepreneurs um, in the building as well as help manage it. So our, our first entrepreneur in residence was uh, Nate Westheimer, um, who had been a young entrepreneur, started up a company, um, did a good job at it, didn't work out. Uh, and so when he uh, cl- announced that he was closing that down, I invited him to uh, uh, come on and be our full-time EIR uh, for the incubator, the co-working space. And he did a wonderful job and and, uh, and really helped the community, helped the entrepreneurs who were here, as well as helping the larger community. And then uh, he was eventually elected as the organizer of the New York Tech Meetup, taking over from Scott Heifernan, who had founded it. Uh, and so uh, so Nate now runs New York Tech Meetup and has also uh, then took a full-time job as VP of Product Development uh, at uh, AnyClip. So he's uh, uh, really involved. Our, uh, he was then succeeded by Ryan Jansen, who was the uh, um, Chief Operating Officer of AngelSoft, our company here, who after five years of helping build AngelSoft, uh, well, decided to go out and start his own company. So Ryan uh, has spent half a year here as our EIR, uh, during which he created a company called SetJam, which is doing some really cool stuff in the uh, online video space. Um, and now uh, our latest entrepreneur is we actually changed. We no longer have an entrepreneur in residence. We now have a breakthrough thing, <laughs> which we're, an experiment we're trying. We have an EIT, an Entrepreneur in Training. A young guy named Bo Bell, who uh, had uh, happened to cross my, my path uh, looking for um, suggestions as to uh, what to do in the tech space. Um, he was finishing his PhD, and, I, and after talking to him for 10 minutes, I said, wait a minute, this guy is an entrepreneur and doesn't know it. He'd never considered being an entrepreneur, but he has all the entrepreneurial spark and passion and self-sufficiency and so on. So uh, like sort of like Henry Higgins and Liza Doolittle, <laughs> I said, why don't you come in and let's see if, if uh, you know we can help you be a real entrepreneur. So Bo has uh, just started um, and is an entrepreneur in training. Um, we're going to let all the other entrepreneurs in the building help to mentor him and he's going to blog about it uh, and hopefully uh, can, he can teach by learning and as he, he works up as gets a company started and, um, and, and learns the, the ropes of being uh, a sophisticated entrepreneur, other people can learn uh, alongside him by reading his blog and, and helping him providing advice. So we'll see how that works out. Very interesting. Um, I want to ask one last quick question about um, just New York in general and the New York community. Mm-hmm. So as you've mentioned that in uh, New York, uh, the tech scene is, is really taking off. I think you were telling me a little bit before the call. Um, but the tech, the tech scene is really starting to, to, to get a lot of traction. Um, one of the reasons for that, obviously, or one, maybe even the reason, is because of uh, Wall Street going down. And my, my understanding of it is that Wall Street, with their high salaries, basically sucked all of the oxygen out of the room because uh, anyone that was going to do something got recruited. Anyone who had some talent got recruited by a hedge fund or whoever, and it's a bit hard to compete with some of these, like, $500,000 a year salaries when you might make 70 or 80 starting in tech. Um, I don't know if my numbers are quite right, but, you know, maybe the general orders of magnitude... Um, 
Wall Street's on a little bit of a downturn, but I would be fairly confident that it's going to come back at some point. I'm interested in what your um, thoughts would be of what would happen to the tech community if that does come back. Well, that's actually a very interesting analysis, and your numbers are actually relatively close. Um, we actually lost a couple of people uh, from AngelSoft here, uh, you know, who were offered salaries of you know three hundred thousand bucks at uh, you know J.P. Morgan, which we can't possibly compete with. Um, and I said, hey, take it, go. You have to go. You owe it to your family to take that kind of a uh, you know a salary increase. Um, and so there there is less competition now on the one hand for uh, those kind of coders. On the other hand, uh, I I think this the change is much bigger than that. I don't think is just the downturn that, that freed up uh, you know, competition for programming talent. Um, I think it's New York developing the ecosystem uh, that uh, Silicon Valley had in California around um, companies that had been here from the mid-90s got big and uh, some were successful, some weren't, but the people had experience in the entrepreneurial world and startup ventures and technology. Now, increasingly in New York, you see uh, advertising technology, um, things that are tying in financial services, um, other areas, and so you have a very vibrant community here in New York. People are coming into New York to be with this high-tech community of startups. And you have the New York Tech Meetup, which has over 12,000 members. Um, I mean, the Israeli Entrepreneur Meetup in New York has over 1,000 members. Just Israeli tech entrepreneurs in New York City. It's pretty amazing. That's insane. Uh, you know, <laughs> So, so I, I think we now have the critical mass and the, the, the growth rate of early stage uh, tech startups and venture funded tech startups is faster and higher in New York now than in anywhere else in the country, including Silicon Valley. Uh, so you're seeing all kinds of venture funds open offices here. First Round Capital just opened an office here. Um, uh, Polaris just opened a Dog Patch, which is their incubator here. Um, uh, uh, Flybridge from Boston is coming down and, and has uh, consultants here. Um, so you have all kinds of, of stuff happening, and it's happening not because, uh, I think, uh, of the less competition for uh, high-paying jobs in the tech world, but because of the growth of the indigenous tech community here in New York. But you don't think once Wall Street comes back and then there's $300,000 a year salaries again and... You know, is that not going to just... No, I, I, no, I, I, no I, I, I don't think so. I, I think quite the opposite. I think when Wall Street comes back, there'll just be, be more, uh, you know, you'll see more in the way of financial services, and you'll see people coming in for those kinds of jobs. Um, uh, but I think we are now, there will always be people who want uh, to participate in the entrepreneurial startup world um, with its promise of potentially large paydays and exciting work and challenging kinds of things. Uh, and I think those will continue. It used to be that that, that was a, a very... Uh, uh, you know, small part of the New York community, um, and uh, I mean, at the height of the boom, you had 8,000 members in Ninda. You now have 12. You know, in, in an area now where you don't have a boom going on, you've got 12,000 members in New York Tech Meetup, and you have all kinds of companies that are getting funded and VCs funding here. So I, I think we've now reached a state of, of hardiness, as it were, um, that will be uh, only a, a great base to grow for the future. Very good. Um, anything you want to tell us in closing? Anything we didn't cover? Uh, no, it's my pleasure. I mean, New York is a great place to uh, locate a startup these days. There is a vibrant community here. Um, you know, angel investors are a, uh, a wonderful source of financing. Um, uh, and uh, what we're seeing increasingly now is more understanding of the, the high-tech startup world from potential angel investors. More and more angels are growing. There's a growth of angel investors is really significant around the country. Groups, angel groups have helped to uh, to get that going, so now someone
somebody can join a group and learn about how to be an angel. By the same token, things like uh, like AngelSoft have helped to standardize uh, angel investing around the world, and the Angel Capital Association, and and, and courses in how to raise raise funds. Um, and so you're, we're seeing a lot more transparency, growth in the individual financing of early stage businesses. And this is, a, I think, a great time to be both an entrepreneur and an angel investor. So whichever way you go, um, we're in for some very exciting times. Very cool. Um, David, thanks for your time. My pleasure.